Welcome to Sounds Familiar, a podcast where we discuss two pieces of media that share themes, plot points, or overarching ideas. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram to keep up to date with our upload schedule, news, and discussions. Take your seat, grab your popcorn, and silence your cell phones now. Please enjoy the show. Welcome to Sounds Familiar, a podcast about movies where we like to talk about movies. My name's Caleb, and today must be Thursday. I can never get the hang of Thursdays. My name's Justin, and I think I'm a sofa. <laughs> My name's Stephanie, and do you mean to wish me a good morning, or do you mean that it is a good morning whether I want it or not? Or perhaps you mean to say that you feel good on this particular morning? Or are you simply stating that this is a morning to be good on? Yes. All at once, I suppose. <laughs> All of the. <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad both of you remembered the actual words. Well, that's pretty much the only thing I remember. So. All right. This week we are talking about Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and The Hobbit: An Unexpected Journey, both movies in which Martin Freeman goes on an unexpected journey. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. That and is. It's. We're stretched a little thin with this one. I, I don't know. As I was watching them, I found myself consistently pleasantly surprised by how well the comparison worked. I think I think the issue for me that I'm having trouble with is that I I tend to do better when I can compare like broader themes and stuff and, and there aren't really that many to be shared here. Uh, a few, th- a couple. Th- there's a couple. Ones, there's maybe. a couple, and they're kind the of at the, they're, they're at the different. heart of it. The structures are very different. Yes, um, the Hitchhiker's Guide is over by the time the Hobbit reaches its halfway point. Well, that too. <laughs> <laughs> right, purely by virtue of the fact that we're analyzing a complete story in the Hitchhiker's Guide and um, the first installment of a trilogy <laughs> with the Hobbit. Um, it's going to be different. Um, and I'm sure we'll get into a little bit of salt on um, <laughs> how yeah. the the story of The Hobbit, uh, a book that both Caleb and I and possibly Justin will find out are very fond of, has been yes. kind of uh, used in this the, the films. But we'll get into that. I yeah. found myself making notes a bit a bit deeper than I usually do. Not yeah. to say I wrote more, but that the the, the thoughts good. had more to them. Mm-hmm. Um, the thoughts had fancier hats. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's promising because I... Honestly, while I was watching it, most of what I was thinking was... I don't know. Being annoyed about stuff. Um... Not even that I didn't enjoy it specifically, as that I kept thinking, why did this need to happen? (laughs) So, (laughs) uh, I don't know. Maybe we'll get into that. And and in Hitchhiker's Guide, I was mainly thinking, I don't know what's happening. So, (laughs) I don't know. We'll see if you had your guide on you. I know. That wouldn't be a problem. My my trusty guide. Uh, Which one of these do we want to start out talking about? Hitchhiker's Guide. Okay. Yes. Uh, Caleb's anxious. I mean, yeah. we normally uh, discuss them order. in the order that we watched them and or chronological order. Yes. Which happens to be the same thing. Um, 
Okay. Okay. So, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is a movie based... I'm not even going to say based on. It is a movie uh, whose original screenplay was written by Douglas Adams, who also wrote the radio play, the TV show, and the book series of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. This piece of media is deeply, deeply British... I mean, so is the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. It's they're that's true. These are they're both, both about British. as important as British pop culture from as British pop culture gets. Mm-hmm. Um, they're every version of the Hitchhiker's Guide is slightly different, and some people are vocal about the differences between them. Um, some people don't like the movie, and my response to those people is Douglas Adams wrote every single one of these. He unfortunately passed away in 2001 before it could be produced. Um, I found out that the original cast, or according to Wikipedia, for the, the first version of this movie was going to star Hugh Laurie as Arthur Dent and Jim Carrey as Zaphod Beeblebrox. Fascinating. Justin's face right now. <laughs> <laughs> I need that alternate universe cut of the movie. <laughs> um, no. That being said, I'm very happy with this one. Arthur Dent, not Arthur Dent, Martin Freeman is perfect as the slightly put off Englishman. Mm-hmm. Um, and God, I love, I love Stephanie. Hmm. You know his name. Sam Rockwell? Who's? Nope, Sam Rockwell. Oh, oh, I didn't realize who you were See, th- I, this has probably happened before. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, <you laughs> eager listeners will know that I cannot remember the name of Sam Rockwell, despite him being one of my favorite actors. Yeah, he always forgets uh, it. Him and Jim the Broadbent. Whole, uh, the whole cast in this movie was really uh, really on point. I loved uh, Most Deaf. <laughs> yeah, and every famous yeah, Brit is in this character. movie. Uh, Warwick Davis is piloting Marvin. Marvin is voiced by Alan um, Rickman. Alan Rickman. Uh, Helen uh, which, Mirren voices Deep Thought. Uh, one of my notes uh, is in all caps: Alan Rickman's the robot. That's fucking rad. <laughs> <laughs> he would probably disagree, but <laughs> yeah, Marvin, not Alan. I don't Alan. think it's particularly radical at all. <laughs> <laughs> Dreadful, isn't it? <laughs> okay. So, Hitchhiker's Guide. <laughs> Douglas Adams has a very unique writing style. Um, the example that always comes to mind is in describing a fleet of alien ships hang- uh, floating above Earth, he wrote, The ships hung in the sky in very much the same way that bricks don't. Uh, so, this movie tried very hard to capture um, capture his wit and yes. the okay basic plot layout. <laughs> Arthur Dent is an Englishman. He is friends with a man he doesn't yet know is an alien uh, named Ford Prefect. Uh, Arthur wakes up to find that his home is about to be bulldozed. And several minutes later, finds out that Earth is about to be bulldozed. Um, both of which <laughs> are about to be destroyed to make way for bypasses. Um, Ford works as, a re- works as a researcher for a book called The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And 
so in the book, uh, Douglas or Douglas Adams is able to go off on tangents um, with about exposition. He can go on an entire page's rant about how the most comfortable mattresses in the galaxy are hunted in the swamps of whatever planet they come from. Um, so, in this, we have the guide voiced by Stephen Fry. Um, and so he'll interject with explanations which are hilarious. There's obviously a ton of stuff omitted, um, but still with references to the cut, uh, the cut pieces sprinkled everywhere in this movie, far more than I ever noticed before. Um, one example being, uh, because I watched it with subtitles this time, um, Ford is constantly exclaiming Belgium, which in the book is explained is the foulest swear word in the galaxy. Ford's an edgy guy. <laughs> yeah. Apparently. Uh, speaking of which, uh, Justin and I should touch on our experiences with right we should too. obviously do that now that we've established yeah. the scene sorry justin <laughs> uh so you, you uh, can tell how eager i am to talk about this <laughs> uh yeah about it. so this uh this has been a long time coming it was my first time seeing the movie i actually had the dvd that i borrowed from caleb for like a year and a half and i never got around to it um, and he's been telling me for the entirety of our friendships, uh, our friendship that uh, I would enjoy this movie and love the book and blah blah blah. And I have to give it to him; he was right. I really liked it. <laughs> um, this is not the first time I've seen the movie. I have seen it. I want to say two or three other times. Um, the thing about this movie is that while I enjoy it every time, I completely forget everything that happens in it almost immediately afterward. Um, I, or which is to say, I remember like random, like funny or weird bits. It'd be like, <laughs> remember that time in Hitchhiker's yeah. Guide went, but I never remember what it's about. The plot is very inconstant. Yeah. Threads get picked up and dropped and then picked up again. Because um, we're constantly getting waylaid yeah. by other I things. I think that that's part of what keeps me from really enjoying it. Uh, I do enjoy it, but I, I think I would enjoy it more if it felt more coherent as a story. And, and I totally understand why it doesn't. Like, it's very much uh, the downside of the kind of story that it is um, and what it's trying to do. So I, I don't necessarily look at it as the worst thing ever. But I wish that it was held together by a slightly stronger story, uh, maybe by some stronger, uh, I don't know, since I always gravitate towards uh, interpersonal relationships in films and like uh, interesting dynamics between characters. I don't feel like that was a really strong point of the story. Um, it's never really clear how the characters feel about each other, except in some really specific instances. Um, and and I don't think that it's a story about that. So I, once again, I don't necessarily think it's the worst thing that could happen to it. I just think that it was a little bit of a drawback for me. But um, it's extremely funny and inventive, um, which is which is the whole point. So I, I definitely enjoy it overall. I'm just uh, I'm definitely gonna have to let Caleb uh, follow take the lead plot. On this one. Yeah, <laughs> he's gonna have to take the lead because I. <laughs> I can give input on certain things that happen, but like as a whole, <laughs> it's 
it, it's a whole like <laughs> <laughs> no don't uh, feel bad i uh i probably won't be cacophony. able to interject yeah i probably won't be able yeah. to uh interject too much either i have like uh thoughts on it as a whole but as far as uh beat to beat i think caleb right, is right. our guide if yeah. you will <laughs> <laughs> yeah um okay so do you want to go my name's caleb and i've been your guide to the world of hitchhiker's guide yeah (laughs) caleb is the hitchhiker's guide today um unfortunately my voice is not as silky and smooth as stephen fry (laughs) i don't know if i would describe it as silky and smooth unfortunately it's not as british as stephen fry there you go (laughs) there you go yeah okay so um ford's house is or arthur's house is about to be destroyed um, a little tidbit right here. The the boss of the, the construction workers who talks to Arthur. Uh, Arthur is laid out in front of in front of a bulldozer. He, he literally is lying down in front of a bulldozer. Yes, laying in the mud. Yeah. Um, and the boss of the construction workers comes to talk to him and tells him that, you know, you're going to have to move eventually. Um, and he has a very particular mustache. Um... <laughs> <laughs> So, <laughs> this might not mean what, much to our listeners. No, but. <laughs> I'm about to explain. Um, a mustache that, like, film ad- and art ad- adaptations of, like, depictions of Genghis Khan tend to have. Um, there's a very particular reason for that. In the book, uh, Douglas Adams goes on a very long tangent about how this man is a descendant of Genghis Khan and occasionally has, like, flashes of images of, like, hairy warriors astride horseback tearing people limb from limb and he has to like suppress the urge to do that to Arthur right now <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, we've all been there so Ford shows up and takes Arthur away to a pub um, and Arthur's like you think they'll destroy my house where we're gone and Ford's like you know I trust him about to the end of the earth mm. and Arthur says when do you think that is and he says oh, about 11 minutes mm. um, so they go to the pub and they have a couple pints and uh, Ford wants to get uh, carbs and uh, protein and salt in them before something happens. Um, this is when a fleet of Vogon constructor ships show up, the ships that uh, look like bricks, mm-hmm. um, and to, to destroy the Earth. Um, this is all, of course, without mentioning the opening scene, uh, which includes an extended narration from Stephen Fry and a musical number featuring dolphins. <laughs> Uh, which felt very Mel Brooks to me. <laughs> yes. Um, so, as the Earth is about to be destroyed, Ford manages to hitch a ride on one of the Vogon ships, and Arthur tags along with him. Um, this is not mentioned in the movie either, but there is a race of beings that work in the bowels of the Vogon ships that hate the Vogons and do everything within their power to annoy them as much as possible. And Vogons hate hitchhikers, so they're the ones who let Ford and Arthur on board. Ah. Um, Because otherwise it just seems like Ford, I don't know, managed to teleport on board just just because. Um, They're quickly found out and subjected to Vogon poetry, which is the third worst in the galaxy. Mm -hmm. Um, The creature design... I think they might have actually been done by Henson Studios, because when I looked up Vogons, they showed up on the Muppet wiki. Huh. 
Um, I mean, they that, definitely look like they could be. Yeah, and the the puppetry on here is really impressive because it can't be easy to move in those. It's funny how their their arms move almost independently from their bodies because they're so long and skinny compared to their giant fat bodies. Um, some of the close-ups on uh, Prostetnik Vogon Jelts, his facial puppetry is just really, there's so many different bits in it that move. Yeah, it's real gross and I love it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, there's also more tidbits in here, just references to the book, like uh, his chair looks like a deer. Um, because on the Vogon home planet, there is a race of deer that they like to catch and sit on and break their backs and use as chairs. Oh. Uh, so this is just an ornamental version of that. So after being subjected to Vogon poetry, uh, they get ejected out the airlock and picked up by the starship Heart of Gold. Uh, which is being piloted by President of the Galaxy, Zaphod Beeblebrox, and Trisha McMillan, who Arthur happens to know from a party that he once went to. Uh, and he totally blew it with her, and she is his phone wallpaper, which isn't creepy at all. Um, no. This woman he's met once. Uh, so this is where we also we first meet Zaphod, Trisha, or Trillian as she goes by in space, and Marvin the robot. Marvin the clinically depressed robot, voiced by Alan Rickman. Um, Marvin is sent to go pick them up, and there's this neat little effect where um, Ford brandishes his towel at Marvin, and there's a sword unsheathing sound effect. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Speaking of sound effects, this is also where we get the first uh, from the (laughs) The doors, and it kills me every time. (laughs) I think that door just sighed. Um, so I made a note at some point here. After we meet them, uh, Trisha joined Zaphod after he picked her up at that same party that Arthur blew it with uh, her. Um, we're introduced to a bunch of stuff here. Um, we use lightsabers to make toast in this universe. Um, I made a note that this seems like a pretty straightforward hero's journey, which is not something I usually say. So it must be. Uh, it must be really obvious if I if I noted that. Um, uh, so the the story structure of this one, as Stephanie was touching on, um, it has a lot of trappings of a straightforward hero's journey. But I there's certain things that are weird because Arthur doesn't really get a chance to uh, deny the call. For example, he is bitter towards the call, but he's always kind of dragged along with it there's no uh, like we'll see in the hobbit bilbo flat out refuses the call which is traditionally how it goes this doesn't really happen, right so right that's a good point well actually what i thought was kind of interesting um now you're totally right uh, what you said about he he refuses or sorry <laughs> he doesn't refuse the call initially because he doesn't really get a chance to he's just kind of uh grabbed and <laughs> taken on an adventure whether he wants to go or not um, he he does actually have a lot of like smaller refusals of the call to adventure throughout the story. Uh, he he's very rarely the one uh, coming up with the ideas. Now he starts to do that a little more over the course of the movie, uh, but <laughs> there are several times I think where um, he is the one who is like, no, let's not do this adventurous thing. Like for instance, um, that part kind of uh, in the latter half 
when everyone's jumping through that portal. Um, and he is, like, the only holdout because he, he's too scared. He doesn't want to go. Um, and he doesn't end up going. Uh, I believe that's when he goes to, like, the, uh, the planet factory. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but... Of course, while he does keep refusing the call to adventure, the adventure keeps happening to him regardless, and he just kind of has to deal with that. And, um, uh, you know, uh, he, he does, of course, have that nice moment uh, near the end of kind of reclaiming his, uh, how should I put it, his autonomy, uh, asserting his role in things. I do wish there had been a little bit more of that, though. I, I wish there had been maybe a little more growth to his character, uh, as there is with, with Bilbo's that, which we'll get into later on. Um, but it, it was of course always pretty fun to see him react to things <laughs> along his little hero's journey, even if he never quite got to the, uh, the heroic part. Um, so, uh, Zaphod and Ford are cousins. Um, Zaphod stole this ship and is seeking the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything. Uh, because millions of years ago, a race of hyperdimensional, hyperintelligent pan-dimensional beings uh, created a computer called Deep Thought to find the answer to the question of life, the universe, and everything. The answer to which is 42, um, which any Hitchhiker's Guide fan would know. It's... It's like the one thing that sticks, like even more so than don't panic, um, is the number 42. So our journey now is to go to the planet Magrathea, uh, which is only accessible uh, through the Heart of Gold's improbability drive. Um, uh, Zaphod is hoping, so this button, it's like a hyperspace button, except it'll take them somewhere anywhere but randomly without coordinates and he's hoping that he'll just hit the button and at some point they'll arrive at Magrathia. Um, so our first hurdle that we have to overcome after this is we arrive on the planet Viltfotl 6 where we meet uh, John Malkovich terrifying as always <laughs> playing <laughs> Hamakovula <laughs> um, who is uh, the leader of a religious group um, after making an unsuccessful presidential bid against Zaphod. Um, <laughs> the, we, we sit through a whole service of this, this religion. Um, Hamakavula wants something from Agrathea also. Um, he wants a gun called the point of view gun that anyone shot by it immediately understands the point of the view of the person shooting it. I love um, that. <laughs> yes, it's this is exclusive to the movie, and it's a great little scene later on. Um, so, Hama gives them the coordinates in exchange for bringing back the gun and Zaphod giving up his extra head and extra arm. Um, because he has two heads and three arms. In the TV show, they did it as where the, the heads were side by side and the second one was this really unnerving mannequin head puppet thing um, the having the head be under the chin is kind of odd but I'll take it to the side by side yeah he kind of popped head. out like a Pez dispenser it was <laughs> disturbing and hilarious 
Um, I don't know at what point I made this, but I wrote, totally understand why this didn't do amazing at the box office. I get it. Makes total and complete sense. Yeah. <laughs> um, so they leave, Magrath- as they're leaving Magrathia, uh, Trillian gets captured by the Vogons. So now we have to go capture Trillian um, before we can go to Magrathia. When using the infinite improbability drive right before they arrive at Vodal 6, they are turned into yarn people. And Arthur goes and throws up multicolored yarn in a trash bin. And the transition from looking up at from looking at the trash can and panning up his arm to him being human now was so smooth. Yeah, that um, whole sequence was, was a lot of fun. Unnoticeable. Um so now they have to go uh, rescue Trillian from the Vogons. There is so much commentary on British bureaucracy in this movie that I just, I guess, don't get. Um, the Vogons are obsessed with filling out forms. Like, you have to fill out a form to jump to hyperspace to, to uh, chase a fugitive. If you fill out the right form, you can release prisoners of war. <laughs> it uh, it reminded me of um, the, uh, what is it, the Council of Bureaucrats or whatever in Futurama. Yes. Yeah. Very, very similar uh, set of jokes there. <laughs> yes. Um, Arthur makes a joke about, no, he's British, he knows how to queue, which, if you've spent any, any amount of time on Reddit, you know that the Brits are serious about queuing. Um, <laughs> or if you know a British person, I guess, I don't know any. Um, so they rescue Trillian by filling out the right papers. I love the slapstick. They're literally slapsticks. Where they're crossing a field, and anytime they have an idea, they get slapped in the face by these, like, spatulas that come up out of the ground. Okay, two things. First of all, I uh, actually did not know that the thing slapped them every time they had an idea. That kind of makes it even funnier. I mean, it's already, like, the funniest part of the movie. (laughs) In my opinion, I guess that tells you what my humor is. I guess I find it hilarious when people get hit in the face with stuff. Actually, no, I usually don't. So I don't know why I think it's so funny in this movie. Anyway, it just is. But yeah, I did not realize that that... I thought they were just randomly jumping up and slapping them. Um, Though, I gotta say that that does make it more confusing to me why they just continuously get hit in the face when they're running. Or are they not getting hit in the face? Are they just randomly being missed by the... Either way, how many ideas can be occurring to them while they are, like, running frantically away from the slappy things? Uh, and yet they keep popping up. I don't know. Not important. Anyway, I like that scene. Um, I also think it's hilarious that the way that they have to um, uh, save Trillian from the terrible beast is by heroically filling out paperwork. Um, that whole scene was pretty great. Uh, it, it was very, uh, classic, uh, we're at the DMV type thing. Very much like that, uh, that whole thing in Zootopia. It reminded me of that, where it's like, yeah, we get it. People don't like going to the office place and filling out the paperwork. But, um, but it was pretty funny, especially because, yeah, apparently all it takes to, like, uh, save a prisoner from certain death is to just make sure you get the right form through. Um, so, you know, commentary. <laughs> hey. Um, <laughs> that's all I got to say about that. It's just funny. Um, yeah, there's so many things. We could spend an entire podcast worth of just, like, the tiny individual bits here. It's it's packed yeah. full of just 
goofiness. Yeah. Um, so they escape from the Vogons. They arrive at Magrathia, which is where this next scene is one of the, an, another one of the most famous bits from this movie slash book. Um, where they arrive to Magrathia and the planet, planetary defense system launches two thermonuclear missiles at them, which uh, they escape by hitting the button on the infinite and probability drive the moment the missiles impact them. Um, one of the missiles is turned into a sperm whale and the other into a bowl of petunias. Um, <laughs> the whole sequence with the sperm whale, his monologue, and the bowl of petunias thinking, oh no, not again. <laughs> <laughs> and then we, like, we pan away and we cut back to our heroes and you hear the sound of a vase smashing somewhere in the distance. <laughs> so dumb, so good. <laughs> So, uh, Trillian and Zaphod and Ford jump through a portal. Arthur waits too long, and the portal shuts uh, before he can jump through. Uh, he is soon approached by uh, Bill Nye playing Slarty Bardfast. <laughs> <laughs> I told you it wasn't important. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which, I mean, Bill Nye is always great, but the, way, the, the odd uh, meek way that he plays this character is very fun um so he goes with slarty Bartfist. the other three go meet deep thought turns out deep thought wasn't coming up with the question um deep thought created another computer to come up with the question um and that computer was earth which was destroyed the moment it finished its programming um, to, to, to calculate the question. Um, they also find the point of view gun, and we have this great little scene with the characters, like, shooting each other with it back and forth. Um, first Zaphod shoots forward, um, and then Trisha just unloads the gun on Zaphod. Um, which I don't, uh, I don't think we touched on, uh, earlier, uh, but she recently found out that Zaphod is the one that signed the order to demolish right. Earth. So. He thought he was signing an autograph, and she is pissed at him because of that. Um, I mean, fair. Yeah. And she's upset because Zaphod, and she's confused about Arthur, um, and he is essentially delivering a monologue for her. Um, like, it's basically her words, but coming from him. Um, I don't know, I think it's a nice little character scene. Um, um, probably unsurprisingly, this is one of my favorite scenes in the movie. Um, <laughs> I, I really think that the movie would have benefited from maybe a few more scenes like this, uh, where the uh, the interpersonal conflict uh, is is brought to the surface a little bit more, because um, there are so many opportunities to do it, <laughs> especially in sci-fi movies like this, like sci-fi fantasy anything with kind of these supernatural elements there's these great opportunities to uh <laughs> to flesh out the way people feel in this very hyper literal way <laughs> that that can be pretty funny uh but also very fascinating to see on screen um like <laughs> the the pov gun literally making you 
um, not only see things from someone else's point of view, but kind of just like say them out loud. Maybe that's just Zaphod doing that because um, he's too stupid to do anything else. Or does it make you say it out loud? Either way, um, it, it is. <laughs> it's this great. It's this great way of showing what they're thinking without you know having them just say it directly to the camera. Instead, another character says it. Um, And, of course, one has to wonder why it took her this long to realize that this guy maybe doesn't really have that much going for him. I mean, besides being the president, that's pretty cool, I guess. But, you know, other than being the first lady of the galaxy, what what do you... (laughs) But um, this was nice. Uh, I have to say I don't necessarily buy that Arthur was a much better option because I didn't really see see that much going on with them uh but i don't know they do talk at one point while she's in the shower so that's sexy i guess um but but yeah this this was definitely a fun scene and it of course it was pretty funny how they pretty much literally are like yeah the the men need this because they've never learned to look at things from other people's perspective but you know trillian doesn't need this because as a woman she's already like socialized to have more empathy for other people and see things from their point of view but the men are over here like wow i never thought of it that way before so ha you know that's pretty funny uh but but yeah i i did like this scene i just i just wish that um (laughs) the the gun would have been used more throughout the story that would have been pretty funny or something like that so they leave actually i don't think we see what happens to them um Arthur finds out that Slutty Barkfist works for a company that creates custom planets. Um, and they created the planet for Deep Thought however many millions of years ago. Um, and the Earth is has been recreated exactly as it was the moment of destruction. And Arthur is taken back to uh, his home, where inside his friends are found just, uh, enjoying a feast provided by the pan-dimensional beings who commissioned Arthur's original Earth who resemble a pair of mice. Um, they believe that with Arthur, who was on Earth on its in its last moments, um, him being the only surviving Earthman who was on Earth the entirety of its programming, they think they can find the question in his brain. Um, and this is where we get uh, Arthur finally, like, buckles down. Like, this is his big character change moments. Um, so made a note at one point I don't remember exactly what moment made me think this but this movie the story is about the importance of creating meaning for yourself giving life meaning um, because everyone is on this quest to find the question that matches this answer 42 um, and Arthur himself says it bloody well isn't 42 uh, the question is 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 she the one? And the answer is yes. So this... The, the answer to the question has to be personal. It's not something that can be calculated by a computer. Um, yeah. This is totally unrelated, but in one of the later books we find out that the question and the answer are mutually exclusive. If you have one, you can't have the other. It's impossible to know. Um, which I think works a little bit still in this context. 
Though I do think that the movie is sometimes a little lighter on theme than than maybe I would prefer, I do think that's a really good point, that it, it is about creating your own meaning, which, I mean, maybe I should take that advice and just create my own meaning for it instead of expecting the story to give it to me. <laughs> just kidding. Um, yeah, that I think that kind of does make sense, and it, it makes me think of, like, other stories about characters who get tossed into really like wild uh seemingly illogical circumstances like um Alice in Wonderland comes to mind um which is that one isn't so much about (laughs) kind of learning to love the chaos as it is about um how do I put it maintaining your own sense of of order and your own truth of things despite everything around you being chaotic and uh irrational uh because alice kind of has to has to deal with these people who are not very good not very smart not very logical uh but she consistently puts her foot down and is like no you (laughs) listen this doesn't make sense and i'm i'm going to tell you what does make sense i'm not gonna play by your rules um All of that was just to say that this kind of similarly is, like Caleb said, about uh, creating your own meaning and not letting yourself be swept up in the complete randomness of life. Like, um, and even if you do kind of have to invent that whole cloth, you know, even if you have to, (laughs) oh gosh, how do I put it? Like, you have to kind of... Okay, so, like, sorry, let me rephrase that. Like, what I... No, that's not what I wanted to say. Hang on. Basically, what I mean is, um, Arthur is tossed into these completely wild circumstances that don't really make much sense to him, and they seem to be happening for, for no reason, like, uh, completely at random or completely dependent on the arbitrary whims of illogical people, and he has to find his purpose within that. Like, instead of letting himself be just a passive character in the story, which he, he mostly has been until now, he has to decide to be active. He has to decide, okay, if I'm in the story, if I have to be the hero of the story, then what am I fighting for? What is my part in it? He has to make his part in it. And um, <laughs> because if he doesn't, it's going to be decided for him by... Uh, little mouse aliens who want to cut out his brain so (laughs) so rather than let that happen he has to rely on his connection with a trillion and um you know though i obviously as i said previously i'm not like 100 percent sold on this relationship though i do think it's cute uh I, i i do like this moment for sure uh where he realizes that that's his meaning that he's been chasing uh is her ever since he met her at the party and she expressed this desire for adventure um and this needful need for fulfillment that he he couldn't really relate to at the time but but now he can and now he's kind of embodying that so arthur is having all these deep personal realizations um and as he's about to have his brain cut out he smashes the pan-dimensional beings and they fade into nothingness um 
very disturbing seeing the squished uh, right. things that look like children. <laughs> right. Um, then the Vogons arrive and open fire. Um, the group takes shelter in Arthur's like mini RV thing, um, which after it's destroyed, there's a a moment where where Zephod's like, "Sorry about your spaceship," because he thought it was a spaceship. Um, and Marvin saves them all by opening fire with the point of view gun upon the entire uh, Vogon uh, Vogon army. And Arthur realizes he doesn't want to stay on Earth. So the four of them leave to go on an adventure. To find the restaurant at the end of the universe. <laughs> which is the name of the sequel. Which Ever. is not at the far end of the universe. It takes. It is literally at the end of time, at the end of existence. It exists inside this special bubble where people can make reservations and watch the universe literally end while they eat dinner. It's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> okay, All right. that was a speed through of the plot. Yeah. Move, this movie's interesting because I feel like we needed to do that. Um, otherwise, we would have spent hours on every little every plot little line. Bit. And, and like uh, like Stephanie said before, a lot of those don't really uh, congeal or go anywhere. So I think skipping them, saving them for the viewer to experience on their own is uh, smart. <laughs> um. Obviously, I like this a lot. I was able to talk almost uninterrupted for 30 minutes about it. Um, <laughs> obviously, I had to re- reference Wikipedia for the plot because it's just, we have to go here, and then we go here, and then we go here, and uh, it's a little all over the place. But overall, uh, it's got a lot of wit and charm, and I like it a lot. Yeah, um, again, uh, I'm going to end up repeating myself here, but I like... Um I kind of like what it does to uh, story structure um, because it's not really about Arthur and how he relates to the um, people around him. I mean, it is to like some extent. That's what keeps the plot moving forward. Uh, but it's really, uh, as you said, Caleb, um, it's really about uh, finding your own purpose, imbuing your own existence with meaning instead of looking for it elsewhere. And uh, right. I really like that. Um, I don't think enough stories get that introspective. I mean, there's definitely some that do, uh, but it's yeah. something I always really enjoy. Um, it's uh, the it shares a lot in common with The Hobbit, I think, on the surface level at least. Um, Arthur and Bilbo were both content to just sit in their homes and drink tea and that was it you know never go anywhere it's not it's not a respectable english thing to do to you know go off on an adventure <laughs> uh, unless you know you get set off to fight in world war 1 um it's there's a particular britishness to this about wanting the routine i've got my house i've got my life i've got my tea time and i you know i want to go home i need my handkerchief um. <laughs> and it all really started with um, him denying uh, himself an adventure uh, with, I forgot her real name, Trillian. 
uh, at that party right. when she wanted to run off to Madagascar, and he was like, uh, that wouldn't be the sensible thing to do. That's a very good point that I had not considered. So his his denial of the call takes place even before the story proper starts. Because mm-hmm. um, it was it's all the way back at that him. party. He doesn't, yeah, he doesn't even have to explicitly say no. It's like built into his personality. <laughs> yeah. That's a good I hadn't considered that. And then because he says no, Trillian then gets on a spaceship with Zephod Beeblebrox. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, that's all I've got to say about this for now, so we'll take a quick break and be right back to talk about The Hobbit and Unexpected Journey. Hi everyone, Justin here. Thank you so much for checking out our show. You may notice some audio issues during these early episodes as we're recording them in separate locations during quarantine. It is our intention to record in person once it's safe, but for now, we work with what we have. Please follow the recommended guidelines, wear your masks, stay safe, and enjoy the rest of the episode. We're back from the break, and we are here to talk about The Hobbit, an unexpected journey from 2012. Woo! Yay! Everyone's excited <laughs> about The Hobbit. It's not terrible. <laughs> um, well, uh, these two do share one thing in co- uh, several things in common. They both have an opening narration. They're both quite British. Focus on comfort at, and home, more so in The Hobbit. Um, Hobbit holes are known for being cozy. Uh, I don't know. I'm just kind of rambling at that point. Do you want to start um, over and I'll introduce it? Sure. Okay. Just got that. I can move this a little closer. I thought you said you could move it closer. No, that's. I like to keep it a little farther away, just so that like it's like the the angle is better. Okay. All right, we're back from the break, and you're hearing my voice again. I didn't have that much to say during Hitchhiker's Guide, uh, a little bit, um, but uh, <laughs> I don't know. I had a really tough time with this one because my usual. Uh, stick of, I, I don't know, analyzing character growth and story structure, <laughs> I was a, a little bit at a loss for what to do with that one. I was like, there are <laughs> things being said here. I'm just not entirely sure um, what they are. Uh, <laughs> right, Stephanie doesn't have anything to say about entire two-minute segments explaining what the ravenous bug bladder beast of Troll is. <laughs> I don't. Uh the Hitchhiker's Guide is very world buildy, which, uh, to be fair, oh, yeah, Lord so of the Rings. is Lord of the Rings, right? <laughs> um, I don't know. I feel like in Hitchhiker's like, Guide, it's more to the exclusion of a lot else. Um, Tolkien uh, invented world building, yeah. <laughs> well, more or less. Um, and uh, I don't know. With the Hobbit, it's a little different because I, um, as anyone who knows me knows, I'm a huge Tolkien fan. Um, I love the book. Uh, I love the movies a little less. Uh, no, I, I love the uh, the Lord of the Rings movies, of course. Um, 
I think these ones are trying very hard to be that or to be very much like it. Um, and it suffers for it. Yes. I mean, what can we say that hasn't Greatly. been said about these movies? Um, the, I have a couple things to say, but I'll, I'll get there later. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's just watching it is a little frustrating for me uh, for a few reasons. Like, one, uh, I wish there was... I mean, it's Bilbo's story, you know? Like, I wish there was more of him and uh, less of all the the politics and lore of... Yeah, about my very last note I made before I just stopped caring and writing notes was this movie needs more Bilbo and less everything else. Yeah, essentially. Yes. Because he's barely in it. And after this one... No, he's in it even less after after this one. Like each movie he is in less and less and less. Right. And I don't like that because I think, I mean, for one thing, I think he's the most interesting character because he's the most like fish out of water character... Uh, the other ones are just doing their usual heroic quest thing. Like, we've seen that. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's the one that has the most unique perspective. Uh, in some ways, even more so than Frodo, because, um, it, you know, I, I don't know how much this is addressed in the Lord of the Rings movies, but in the books, it's pretty clear that uh, Frodo was always at least kind of interested in getting out and seeing the world and having adventures after hearing all that from Bilbo, whereas Bilbo was not interested in that. He did not want that. He very much wanted to stay at home, and so the fact that he has to overcome that... Despite being half took. Right, right. He is he is fighting with himself. Yeah, that's kind of the rather on-the-nose demonstration of the different halves of himself is his, his split ancestry. Um... And you know, I, I just, I just wish there was more of him, especially because Martin Freeman is so good as him, uh, is so good in the role, and um, and just because the the movies try so hard to insert so much action, they they want to, you know, they want to have all these fight scenes, they want it to be cool, and it's just like, but we didn't need that. Like, I like those things, obviously. Like in Lord of the Rings, I love those action scenes. But it's also a different type of story. Like, The Hobbit wasn't that type of story, at least not initially. Uh, But it was kind of made into that. Uh, For me, uh, when I heard they were making The Hobbit movie, um, I got super excited. And what I thought was going to be a uh, one really tight three-hour journey through Middle-earth, or maybe even two, like, two-hour uh, movies, which you could easily adapt the novel into that, and it'd be good. It turns out to be a three-movie, almost ten-hour thing, and it just feels so. It's a slog. Like, and the third movie is all stuff that barely that didn't really even happen. It's like a book. single page yeah. of yeah. of <laughs> prose. Um, I don't care about Azog. He's boring and lame. <laughs> yeah, that's another thing. The Hobbit doesn't really have a singular antagonist. Um, it just has various obstacles that they have to come up against. But you can't have that in in a movie trilogy. There, there, there need to be antagonists. No, and this... It's such a slog. Okay. The opening exposition is long, and then... Past that takes forever to go anywhere. It is 13 minutes into the movie before we see young Bilbo for the first time. It's crazy. Well, they're doing the thing like the Lord of the Rings does. They're, they're yes. starting it with a long-ass 
and then they're reminding us, oh, look, here's Frodo. And it's 40 minutes into the movie before Bilbo leaves his home. Yeah. 40 minutes. (laughs) It takes, what's the math here? 20, 27? Yeah, 27 minutes to establish who the dwarves are and that they have a quest. Yeah. (laughs) But you get a fun musical number. I mean, it's a good one. (laughs) The extended edition has like two or three additional musical numbers. (laughs) And the thing is that proportionally to the overall story, since it is being stretched over three movies, it's not that weird to have it be 40 minutes in when everything kicks off. Because with the overall runtime of the entire trilogy, that's not that much. But the fact that it's in this one movie, you know, um, (laughs) the pacing is really weird for sure. Um, okay, so... Uh, my personal experience, I read the book once in sixth grade, and I'm a Lord of the Rings fan. That's I haven't read it in a long time. Yeah. I, did, I haven't seen the movie since uh, it came out on Blu-ray initially. Let's try. I haven't read the book since I was a kid, actually. Um, in fact, I read it before I read the Lord of the Rings books. Um, and I quite liked it, but I, I really could stand to read it again um, to refresh on it. Uh, the movie, yeah, I saw it in theaters. Um, seen it maybe once since then. Um, I think I've seen the extended edition. <laughs> um, Justin? Yeah. Uh, I saw the movie in theaters. Uh, I read the book uh, also in sixth grade. Strangely enough, I read it again in seventh. Um, I've read all of the Lord of the Rings books twice. Um, and... Saw it when it came out in theaters, and then I was working in FYE when the Blu-ray came out, so it was just kind of on loop for like two months, so I've seen bits and pieces <laughs> of it. Um, I'll actually go ahead and tell the audience here, uh, I had kind of a crazy week, so I only was able to rewatch the first half of this movie, uh, so bear with me as my uh, interjections get smaller and smaller. If it was a normal length movie, you would have had time to watch both of them. Yeah. Because yes. this, this movie at its halfway point is about as long as The Hitchhiker's Guide. <laughs> it's it's too long. It doesn't need to be as long as it is. So many scenes. I stopped in the middle and was like, huh, I don't care about what's happening. Um, <laughs> like, And it, it's honestly kind of sad because every now and again there were moments where I was like, I, I care about what's happening. And then I was like, <laughs> I oh, care again. yeah, that shouldn't be, I, I shouldn't be feeling like that. Like, um, you should, if anything with a good movie, you should be surprised when you don't care about something as opposed to surprised when you do care. Right. Um, but okay. So, so, so yeah, let's get into it. Okay. Uh, they, uh, these two movies share something in common an opening narration. Yeah, we gotta set it all up. The Hobbit has a lot to say about the the goodness of comfort and home. Mm, Yeah. Um, As I mentioned, the opening exposition takes a long time, but none of it's important. So we'll skip the young Bilbo meeting Gandalf, whom he knows from his childhood but does not remember. Yeah, Gandalf kind of just decides. It, you know, Gandalf works in mysterious ways. He just kind of decides, like, hey, Bilbo should do this. Like, I don't... He, that's that's about all the explanation you're going to get. 
Um, I remember him being spunky when he was a kid. Yeah, I should <laughs> take sign him, him up on an adventure. I don't know life. any other spunky short guys. Yeah, ex- <laughs> except for all the dwarves, I guess. They're not graceful enough. No, I don't know. They're too bulky. Um. Yeah, basically the entire reason that they need Bilbo, it's so flimsy. I'm sorry, I love Tolkien, but I just don't buy this at all. They need someone small. <laughs> we need a Hobbit. You're the yeah, only one who's exactly. uh, you're the only one Hobbit who's who uh, whose name Gandalf remembers. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. Get, uh, uh, sorry, uh, Bilbo is not that much shorter or slimmer than any of the dwarves. Like especially the young ones. Yeah, exactly. The They're princelings. Very yeah. similar in stature. Could they not have just gotten a skinny dwarf, like a dwarf woman, like anything? They're not light on their feet. Yeah, a pe- I don't. It's like I said. It's thin. It's really thin. Thin. Um. Yeah. <laughs> like butter scraped over too much bread. <laughs> um. But yes. Um, so, but be that as it may. So the the Bilbo says no. Uh. Then the dwarf later that night the dwarves show up at his house one by one. Um. They've been told that Bilbo is their burglar because they need someone who can sneak up on a dragon. <laughs> I don't know. Um, he was a burglar. <laughs> uh, chalk up our first community reference of the night. Oh wow. Hey, that's good. We we waited until the second half. Um, uh, I had a note that said both movies start with the protagonist's house getting wrecked by uninvited people. <laughs> uh, so the. the Indeed, the the first chapter of this book, uh, of the book, is called An Unexpected Party, which is where I'm sure An Unexpected Journey gets its name from. Um, Both of these, also, the main character has no spine in the the beginning. Mm -hmm. He is only able to protest feebly. I I was going to say, Arthur lies down in front of a tractor. Like, that's something. That's true, but he's still not able to, like, properly stand up for himself. Yes. Um, yes, he, like he's not able to stand up to Zayfod. They are verbally constipated. Um, <laughs> so they they share that in common. Um, yeah, Bilbo goes Bilbo's on this whole rant kind of... while the two dwarves are raiding his pantry, and they don't even notice him at all no, until he, he says, "I'm yeah. sorry," and they're like, "I don't know." Yeah, <laughs> we it's, and you. the dwarves, to be fair, are very very inconsiderate of him and his space. <laughs> right, hobbits like guests, just not unexpected ones. Yeah, exactly. And also, it was a dick move of Gandalf, as I wrote in my notes. Uh, what? Well, why would Gandalf tell the dwarves there was food? Well, I mean, this way, Bilbo knows nothing is going to go rotten in his larder no. while he's off. No, no, no. <laughs> why did? Why? No, I don't accept that. There's no. nothing. There's nothing in there. It's rude. Gandalf is rude. <laughs> no, I think that the explanation that we're meant to take away, if we think about it, is that Gandalf's trying to get him out of his rut and like, but like, he had no right to do that because if Bilbo wants to stay in his house, he should be allowed to do that. Granted, it ends up being a good thing ultimately that he did it, but just the same, <laughs> he should have left my man's alone. Um, but regardless, so, dwarves show up. Yes. We discuss the plot. Yeah, dragon has moved into the dwarven city of Erebor. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, probably many decades ago. So at this point. much time is spent on this. Yeah, so much exposition, uh, flashbacks, extended yeah. flashback sequences. Yeah, um, finding out uh, Thorin's entire lineage and meeting all of them. Um, God, and Thorin is the most boring character. I'm sorry. Like he is like Aragorn, but not 
interesting. <laughs> I'm not trying to be a dick. Like, I love Richard Armitage. He's a really good actor. I'm just like, yeah. why would I care yeah, about Thorin's this character? Yeah, whole character is just varying levels of angry. Right. He's just, like, a stoic but also kind of angry, like dude who's a king how many of those do we have in lord of the rings a ton and there are plenty that are more interesting (laughs) like i and that's another thing i just don't care about most of the characters in this movie like you can't you can't because there's a million of them and they're all the same not to like be racist toward dwarves but like geez i I don't know (laughs) that literally some of them their personality is just fat or has a funny beard like that's it um the only dwarf that I care about is Balin because he's cool and he is actually the only one who has any emotional intelligence, as I wrote in my notes, yeah, and like, like actually Balin. bothers to talk about and stuff. From I time like to time. Nori. I think Which it's Nori. one's that? I don't. Know. Uh, he's the one who talks to Bilbo when he's trying to sneak. Okay, off. that's true. That that was a nice moment because at first I was like, "Who the fuck is this guy?" But also I was like, "It's nice that they're giving one of the random dwarves who hasn't had a lot of attention this moment with Bilbo." Yeah, like, Nori gets like good. the third or fourth most screen time and like lines. Mm. Um, and then I also I also like the one with the beard wrapped around his face who offers Gandalf a tiny thing of wine and tea. <laughs> I don't remember. He's very that. polite. That's nice though. <laughs> yes. Due to technical difficulties, Justin will not be able to join us for the remainder of this episode. Hmm. So, this is going to be a Caleb and Stephanie duo cast. <laughs> yeah, I guess it is. All um, right, Stephanie, we, we were talking about The Hobbit. I know that. <laughs> we can just jump. We were complaining about the amount of exposition and okay, backstory. Yes, yeah. Um, we get the nice song, the song of the Lonely Mountain. Yeah. Um, and the dwarves leave in the morning and Bilbo chases after them because he realizes he really does want a life of adventure. Um, this is 40 minutes in. Um, Bilbo has to learn to do without the comforts of home. He tries to stop the whole caravan and turn them around because he forgot his handkerchief. <laughs> Um, and Gandalf tells him, you know, you'll have to do a lot more, do without a lot more than that. Mm. Home is behind you. The world is ahead. Mm. Which is a great line. And obviously the delivery is always amazing because Ian McKellen does a fantastic job. Yeah. Um, he elevates what he is given right. in this movie, of course. So they camp for the night and we get more backstory slash exposition. Yeah, that's true. We about do. Thorin and his uh, nickname and Azog the Defiler. And this campfire exposition is so painfully by the numbers. <laughs> Feely and Keely make some sort of joke to, to bother Bilbo um, mm. about there being orcs. And Thorin gets annoyed and then Balin yeah, wanders up. he's defaulting to his angry setting. Yep, and Balin wanders up and is like, oh, now, laddies, don't you know why he's so annoyed? Yeah. And he delivers the whole uh, exposition all about... Uh, there was a, an orc who decided he, want to, he wanted to kill Thorin's entire line. No reason is given other than he wanted to do it. Yeah. Uh, he kills Thorin's know. grandfather. Thorin's father was nowhere to be found, either ran away or taken as a prisoner of war. We never find out what happens to him after that. Um, and Thorin takes up an oaken shield, an oak branch he wields as a shield, 
and fights Azog. And the dwarves turn the tide and they chase the orcs away while simultaneously losing a bunch of people. <sighs> I don't care about the stuff with Azog. And yeah, like I said, this no. is so by the numbers. This is like... Oh, God. Um, okay. <laughs> After this, we meet the trolls. We are an hour in now before we reach our first confrontation slash trial of any sort. Yeah. Trolls turn to stone and sunlight, so Bilbo gets them to argue amongst themselves um, to buy time for uh, the sun to rise and Gandalf to show up and help them out. They leave and are... What, are they immediately chased by orcs here? I don't... They're... I don't... They get chased, <laughs> by, chased orcs. by orcs a few Almost times. Almost immediately. Um, yeah. I don't know if this is real time, but in the movie, almost immediately, well, we meet Radagast, I think. Yes. Um, who is not really in The Hobbit. This is just more extraneous stuff added into pad time. Um, it is kind of cool to see Radagast. It is. I like him as a character. Just because the, the you get told that there are five wizards, but the only ones you see in Lord of the Rings are Saruman and... and Gandalf. Gandalf. Yeah. Uh, so it's cool to see other types of wizards. Right. Like, and see what kind of magic they do. Right. Um, played by Sylvester McCoy, mm-hmm. the seventh doctor, I believe. Um, the group gets chased by orcs. Uh, Radagast shows up again to help them. Um, and he leads off the... Or he is there while the orcs show up. I don't remember. And he distracts the orcs on their wargs because he has Roscabel rabbits. Um, just throwing around vocabulary yeah, left I don't and know right. Where that is, but... Like, uh, like Azog is a Gundabad orc. Like yep. we're, we're given these words, but not. I mean, not their meanings. In fairness, those are probably real canonical places. I don't remember, but there isn't much. We don't have much. To go on for them in the movie. No, right. Like it's what the like. Importance uh, is. It... <laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, the dwarves make their way to a secret passage to Rivendell. And. More useless stuff happens. More here. stuff happens. Um, Thorin is a dick to Elrond. Of course. Um, because. The, the the elves didn't show up to help Erebor when uh, to help the dwarves when the the dragon attacked. But like that wouldn't be Elrond's fault. That was Thranduil's fault. Thranduil was the one who decided not to attack. Uh, maybe there. But anyway, uh, dwarves are racist against elves and vice versa. Yeah, they have a long-standing feud. But uh, Elrond is the only one who knows how to read this magical map that they have. Um, it just so happens they're there on the right night to read the map. Uh, to find where the secret passage is to get into Erebor. Uh, we don't stick around Rivendell very long. I don't know how they right. how long they stick around in the book, but I feel like it's more it, than one night. I don't know. They're not um, there very long, but or at least not much of the book dwells on it. I don't remember exactly how long they're there. Uh, the oh right, they go through the mountain pass, and there's the like random Ooh, stone the stone giants, giants fighting, which is like a throwaway line in the book. Turn into a whole action but set action piece scene. But action scene, yeah, we gotta get our action in there. Otherwise, um, the kids won't think it's cool. This movie should not be action set piece after action mm. set piece. And yet, we, as soon as the thunder gi- the, the stone giants are done fighting, we lay down, they're sleeping, and then are immediately captured by goblins. <laughs> now that we've had two minutes of peace and quiet, 
Bilbo tried, had tried to leave again, and he has this nice little moment with Nori. And then the floor literally falls out from underneath them. Yeah, right, right after the quiet moment, we're right back into an action And they're set, captured please. by goblins. Bilbo manages to slip out in the chaos. He fights a goblin by himself, and they fall down a pit. And the story gets split here, where the dwarves are captured, and then Gandalf shows up, and they fight their way out of the goblin city. Uh, that sequence, yeah. Which is, ugh, it's like... No reason for it at all. Uh, it's very, like, Pirates of the Caribbean with mm-hmm. giant swinging bridges all over, over chasms, and it's ridiculous. While Bilbo is having his nice, quiet riddle sequence with Gollum, <laughs> which Stephanie pointed out is way too well lit. Yeah, normally I don't have that criticism of scenes. Normally I think they should be more lit, like, as in I think they're too dark <laughs> and it's hard to see. Yeah. <laughs> no, this should have been much more atmospheric. Right. The lighting uh, really cuts down on the creepiness factor and on the tension. Like, it's way too bright. You can see everything really clearly. Yeah. Um, This should have been really dark and you only see, like, maybe... Uh, a shadowy version of Gollum like you see bits and pieces of him you don't see him all out there in the right. in the daylight so Bilbo has found the ring he's having a riddle contest with Gollum if Bilbo wins Gollum has to lead him out um Gollum decides he's not gonna do that so Bilbo puts on the ring goes invisible right am I missing something uh Gollum figures out what he has. He runs away, puts on the ring, and Gollum runs past him. And then so Bilbo follows Gollum out because obviously Gollum is going to run through the real exit. Yes. And simultaneously, the dwarves are making their way out and Bilbo sees them pass by. Um, And he has to jump over Gollum and, like, kicks him in the face. Um, And then... Wait, the important moment there. There's the moment moment where he, he... Remember, this is literally referenced in Lord of the Rings. Yes, where Bilbo has his sword at Gollum's throat. And And Gollum can't see him. He has no idea he's there. Right, and he takes pity on Gollum. Right, it's like... There's so few actual, like, quiet, nuanced moments in this movie. (laughs) Like, um... So, which is why it's nice that there actually is this this moment of like just standing there and thinking basically like um and and we there's a shot that kind of holds on Gollum's face so we're seeing it as Bilbo does and in particular we're seeing it through his perception we're seeing his his pity for this creature like because and the, the facial acting with Gollum is great like um for all my complaints of this movie I think they did a great job with this character and with animating him and it was probably still Andy Serkis doing mm-hmm. the <laughs> doing the moves um, they really captured his physicality and his weird little like mood swings very well um, and, and um, you see his face actually looking really sad for a second like you see like the the horrible just like emptiness and just <laughs> of not having the ring you know um, the fear and confusion and loss of being separated from that. And and, um, and you see it through Bilbo's eyes, and it's just also kind of chilling, too, because you're you're remembering, like, what this ring that's now in his possession will do to 
to him and to Frodo and to Gollum, too, like, later on in the story. So I do think this is a nice moment of tying into the trilogy, uh, <laughs> the Lord of the Rings trilogy, even though I wish that that had not been as much of a focus in a lot of the movie. I, I think in this case it was good. Um, but so basically he despite having the chance to kill him and it probably would have been a better move too because he could have escaped more safely he he chooses not to do it and he instead takes a flying leap over him which does happen in the book <laughs> but <laughs> kind of kicks him in the face on the way over so he's like I'm not gonna kick you but I, I will I will I, I'm not gonna kill you but I will kick you and of course Gollum's furious because he realizes like yeah. what just happened but he still can't get to him and Bilbo then walks upon a scene of Thorin talking mad shit about him. Yeah, Thorin <laughs> being his usual self. And he decides to make a grand entrance, which who could blame him? Yeah, I would do the same thing. And then we are immediately assaulted by orcs. Yeah, of course, because action set piece. And chased up a tree. Gandalf calls the eagles. Um, Bilbo saves Thorin's life as Thorin is about to be beheaded by an orc. Um, yeah, uh, Bilbo really uh, heaps coals of fire on his head, as uh, the Bible would put it, in that first he comes up whenever Thorin is talking mad shit about him and is like, oh, actually, I was here the whole time, and um, uh, proves that he didn't abandon the dwarves. <laughs> More like they abandoned him because <laughs> they took off without him. And then, of course, after Thorin uh, apologizes and realizes that he was he was wrong, um, or does he do that yet? No. No, he doesn't. He okay, right. He doesn't do that yet. Um, and then, <laughs> then Bilbo also saves his life. So, like, yeah, I'm sure right. Thorin felt like a dick as well. He should. Right. His Azog showed up and Thorin found out he's still alive. What? And Azog kicks his ass and hits him in the face with a mace. Um, Bilbo saves his life. Uh, they get run up to trees by wargs they set fire and the eagles show up and save them and they fly them away thorn regains consciousness and gives his big apology to bilbo on the top of this mountain the eagles couldn't have set them anywhere more convenient <laughs> no just the um, mountain and then we see erebor and smog oh yeah there's that little shot of smog at the end which is kind of cool though very cgi yes Okay. My final thoughts on this movie are... I wish it had not come out after Lord of the Rings. I wish we could have gotten a live-action adaptation in the late 80s, early 90s... In the spirit of, like, Willow or The Princess Bride or some other movies whose names I'm forgetting. Hmm... Um, when it was, like, the, the family-friendly sword and sorcery stuff, uh, like, with the soft lighting from the late 80s, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And we could have focused much more on it being a kid's movie. Wouldn't wouldn't have to have constant tie-ins and references to the Lord of the Rings that do nothing but slow down the story. Yeah, that, in particular, that one scene of, like, Gandalf, Elrond, Saruman, and Galadriel all talking, <sighs> that whole time I was thinking... This has next to nothing to do with the story of The Hobbit. Right. So while I understand why it's here, it doesn't need to be here. 
Because, like, it doesn't even have the excuse of being, like, an MCU movie with the the frequent criticism that they're always setting up other movies. Like, it's not even setting up another movie because the movie already came out. We already know what happened. Right. So, <laughs> so all the stuff no with the necromancer and Azog and it's just so utterly pointless and detracts from Bilbo's story. Yeah, which is what it should be about. That's the interesting part about it. Um... Like all of that could have could have been taken out, um, and that's the sad thing is like so much of the movie is divided between boring talking scenes and boring action scenes. Like you just don't feel the stakes very much, I guess. Um, you don't really feel that worried for the characters. I, I don't know the, and of course it it makes sense that they're gonna get out of most of the scrapes they get into because you know it's a movie and we gotta go somewhere but i don't know i i'm having a a trouble putting my finger on it but i never feel like there is much consequence to anything that happens Mm. yeah ah this movie is an odd duck yeah no definitely um i don't know that of course, I kind of felt similarly about Hitchhiker's Guide in that I feel like a lot of stuff just happens and there's not really any larger reason for it. Mm-hmm. It's mostly just happening for the sake of it happening. Uh, I do think Hitchhiker's Guide is less boring <laughs> because I think that this movie can feel like kind of a drag. Um, most of the good aspects of it are... <sighs> are the stuff that's drawn directly from the book. Um, And, you know, that and just Martin Freeman and Ian McKellen being really good actors. (laughs) Obviously, they they do really well with it. Yeah. Um, But I don't know, just as a whole, it, it feels very, like... If it was not based on an already existing book, I don't think anyone would care about it. No. Uh, so that's the unfortunate thing about it. Um, also, it, it can be a little hard to tell character motivations, which I think is also true of Hitchhiker's Guide. Uh, <laughs> Arthur never has a very strong motivation for being where he is. It's always he's just getting swept along in someone else's thing. Yeah. And it can feel like that for Bilbo, too, and it kind of is... The best moments for him are we when we see some agency from him, right. which isn't very often. Um, the key difference here being that Bilbo still has a home to return to. Yeah. Um, which <laughs> ultimately becomes... Yeah. Uh, that's an important point. He leaves because he has a home to go back to, and he realizes that the dwarves don't. That's, yes. why they're do- that's why they're on this quest, and he says that he's going to do whatever he can to help them get their home back. That is a good moment that I actually, and y'all feel free to draw and quarter me if I'm wrong about this because it's been forever since I've read the book, but I, that I don't think is actually really touched on in the book. So I think that is one of the few things that I will say is an improvement by the movie that it actually explicitly says this. Like, it yeah. says... it. It makes Bilbo's motivations for going on the quest more explicit, which I think is a good thing, honestly. Yes. Because in the book, it can feel a little more like, while we are in Bilbo's head a lot more, it can feel more like he's just kind of getting swept along and just reacting to stuff and not making a lot of really direct choices. 
But this version of Bilbo, we actually do see him make more decisions and, like, have motives for what he's doing. And, and basically, yeah, like, it comes down to he is helping the dwarves and, and, and defending Thorin, who has been a dick to him, like, out of the goodness of his heart. And, like, that's kind of the point. That's kind of the role of hobbits in the story in general is that they have this, like, simple goodness to them. Yeah. Where they just kind of... The uh, choose to do the right thing because it's the right thing. Like even if you know, even if they're scared, even if the circumstances don't make much sense to them. Um, so I, I think that is good. I will say that for the movie, I think it's good that they make that really clear. And <laughs> like I said, in Hitchhiker's Guide, it, it's never as, as clear to me what what exactly Arthur wants, except to return home. I guess he wants to do that. Um. He wants to get with Trillian. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but um, I don't know. That's about all I have for that. <laughs> I think it's important for the protagonist to have a strong want slash need. Or to have both a strong want and a strong need. And, I don't know. That can be a little difficult to come by in these films. It is interesting in The Hitchhiker's Guide that the character searching for the question to match to go with the answer the searching for the answers to life the universe and everything is not the one who ends up learning that lesson <laughs> Zaphod does not learn a lesson Arthur gets dragged along into Zaphod's adventure and he is the one who learns the the meaning yeah um which is a little I don't know that's odd to me usually it's the the character searching for thinks they know the truth they're searching for that has to discover a new truth. Yes. But in this case, it, I don't know. It was different. Yeah, that's true. Zephod's whole arc was to be dumped by his girlfriend. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it, yeah. The, I don't know what I was going to say. That's okay. That's about all I've got to say about The Hobbit and The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yeah, we're missing Justin, so we're like kind of like, what do we do? Yeah, this is going to be a little bit of a short one, but I guess that's okay. Yeah. Because we have long ones sometimes, so we'll give oh, our listeners yes, a break. Oh, yes, we do. <laughs> yeah. Um, I hope this episode encourages our listeners to go watch The Hitchhiker's Guide if they have not seen it already. Yes, definitely check it out. Uh, and or read the book, but do not feel obligated to watch the TV show. It is a remnant of its time. <laughs> <laughs> and read The Hobbit. Feel no pressure to watch the movies, but do read it and then decide if you want to watch the movies. Maybe, possibly. Yeah. There are enjoyable aspects to them, for sure. All right. So long, and thanks for all the fish. Thank you so much for listening to our show. You can find us online on Twitter and Instagram at SoundsFamiliar. If you'd like to get in contact with us, drop us a line at SoundsFamiliar at gmail.com. We'd like to thank our friend Chelsea for our logo. Be sure to check her out on Instagram at ChelseaBHDesigns. We'd also like to thank Shane Quick for our theme music. If you feel so inclined, please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to tune in every Tuesday for new episodes. 
We'll see you next time on Sounds Familiar.